your hand if you didn't get a study sheet this morning. I think that'll that don't don't be shy. Raise your hand if you didn't get one. I do think it'll I do think it'll help you follow along with what you're doing, um, with, with what well with what I'm doing or what we're doing. Maybe not with what you're doing, but it, I think it's going to help you follow along. I think it's going to help you track with where we're headed this morning. It's great to see everybody, man. I'm I'm glad you're here. I'm excited for what the Lord has for us. Let's. Let's, let's begin in a word of prayer, if we could. Father, we, we love you and we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the privilege that we have this morning that we get to, we get to open it and, and we get to study it. And God, I pray that you would just do a work through it. It's a, it's a supernatural book and this book has the supernatural ability to penetrate hearts and lives and to change them. It, the, the truth from this book that we're opening this morning is is it has the keys to eternal life and god i pray that you would just minister to our hearts this morning i pray that you would change lives this morning if there are lives that need to be saved i pray that you would save lives this morning and we love you so much in your name we pray amen we we've recently begun a a verse by verse study of the book of second thessalonians and this is, a, this is actually the, the third message in this book study that we're, we're in. And, and two weeks ago when I preached, we started talking about this thing of understanding adversity. We, it, adversity, of course, it, it comes in, in many different shapes and sizes. But one thing is certain, we will all experience it to one degree or another. And, and, and this Thessalonian church... This was a church that experienced an extremely high amount, an extremely high degree of adversity. This Thessalonian church, it was a church that was growing spiritually, but they were growing spiritually despite the fact that they were under intense persecution. This is a group of people. They were, they were previously idol worshipers. This is where they came from. They, and, and, and through Paul's proclamation of the gospel, they understood that they were sinners in need of a Savior. They, they understood in the midst of Paul preaching that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the promised one. He was God in human flesh, and, and he came to this planet, and he was crucified on the cross to make atonement for our sins and they understood that now he's commanded them and all of us to call on his name in faith faith in who he is god in human flesh faith in what he did he died to make payment and atonement for our sin our sin demanded a penalty before a holy god and they understood this and that's exactly what the thessalonians did and that's exactly what they did, they, re, they, re, they responded in faith. And just as soon as they'd done that, just as soon as they had called on the name of Jesus to save them, persecution hit right away. They, just, just the second it happened, immediately they're under this intense persecution. And as Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this second letter to the Thessalonians church, Thessalonian church, this persecution has still been going on. We've already talked about this persecution in the first letter that they wrote to the Thessalonians. It's still going on. They're still talking about it here in this second letter. But, it, but it's, it's a problem that this Thessalonian church, man, they were handling this persecution. They were handling it in such an incredible way. 
that despite their persecutions and trials and tribulations that they were going through, they were responding to all of that adversity in faith and in patience. That's how they responded to it. And, and, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're using some of the first few verses of the book of Second Thessalonians to kind of brag on them a little bit, brag on them in a good way, and just talk about these things. And, and, and they're describing this, impre- this incredible response that this church is having despite the persecution that they're suffering. And, and, and we've been seeing, man, there's a whole lot that we can glean. There's a, there's a whole lot that we can be learning from this church. And we've been specifically seeing there's a lot that we can begin to learn about understanding the adversity that comes in our own lives and, and how we handle adversity in this church. And so this morning, we're going to continue doing that. And so first, I want us to see, number one, the way God judges righteously in our adversity. The way God judges righteously in our adversity. The, the verses we're about to be looking at reference the way or, or how it is that God judges righteously that we will experience adversity in our lives. He righteously judges that. And, and I want us to see that from verse 5, but let's, let's start in verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. We covered all of verse 4 and part of verse 5 the last time I preached, but this morning we're going to have the chance to dive in a little bit deeper, especially to this verse 5. And so let's start with getting our heads around this thing of a a manifest token. I'm, I'm guessing it's been a few weeks since you guys have used that in your vocabulary. And so it, we, we, a token is, is something that is representative of something else. So we, w- so we would say something like this. I'm giving you this as a token of my appreciation for what you did for me, right? Whatever that token is, is representative of something else, which is your appreciation. And, and in this verse, there's a manifest token in other words it's a clear or obvious token there's something that is a clear representation of something else and according to these verses the persecutions and the tribulations that the Thessalonian church endured were a manifest token or a clear representation of the righteous judgment of God God is righteously judging or God is righteously allowing that the Thessalonians endure persecutions and tribulations. And the reason is so that they'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God that they're suffering for, according to the end of verse 5. And listen, it works the same exact way for us. God righteously judges and righteously allows that trials and tribulations come into our lives for the purpose of entering eternity and being able to be counted worthy of the eternal kingdom that we're entering. Not for the purpose of whether or not we enter the kingdom, but for the purpose of being counted worthy for the kingdom that we enter. We, we talked about that 
some last time. But again, what we see is that these persecutions and tribulations that we have in our lives, and all of us have had varying degrees of tribulations, though most of us have had a lot less of what we could define as persecutions. But regardless of the degree or the frequency, the persecutions and the tribulations that God allows or appoints in our life are referred to as God righteously judging that those things happen. And I think Philippians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 will give us more clarity as to what God is trying to teach us here. Where we actually see in this verse, God reference another manifest token or an, or an evidence token in this verse. Here's how it works according to Philippians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29. Paul says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, in, in other words, your attitude in adversity is that you're not afraid of anything your adversaries can bring your way, including the suffering that your adversaries cause, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now listen, this is important that we get this, because this is exactly how it works. The world believes that when they persecute us, or when they see us enduring persecutions and tribulations in our lives, when they see that, they believe that it's like, that it's like, that it's like verse 4, an evident token of perdition. Excuse me, not verse 4. Verse 28, that it's an evident token of perdition. That's what the lost world believes when they see that in our lives. In other words, they believe it's an evident token or a clear representation of perdition or that we've been cursed by God for destruction or, or if God is allowing it, it must be him showing an evident token that he's abandoned us. That's how the world tends to see adversity. And, and it isn't just them. We have the tendency to believe that too, don't we? It's, it's, it's kind of human nature to be, believe that. It, it, it was that way with David. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, David had, had an adversary named Shimei. And, 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 that was, that, and he was, Shimei was a, he was a part of God's family. And, and Shimei looked at the tribulations that, that Absalom had caused David. Uh, David was Absalom's father, of course. And here's what Shimei said to David. Come out, come out, thou bloody man and thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. David's adversaries looked at, at the tribulation in his life, and he says, can't you see that God is cursing and abandoning you right now? God is against you, David. But you see, interestingly enough, Shimei, who cursed David and, and, and had a whole lot to say about God abandoning him, was singing a very a significantly different tune just three chapters later in 2 Samuel 19, 
verses 18 through 23. In fact, verses 19 through 20 record Shimei begging for forgiveness for what he'd done, and the verses following record David showing him grace when he was advised to just go ahead and take this sucker out, would you? And he shows him grace. My, how the tables had turned. Did the tribulations that God allowed mean that God had abandoned David? No, but that was what his adversaries thought. God had righteously allowed adversity in David's life, but he hadn't abandoned him. How about Job? Job's troubles are are very well known. He, He ultimately loses his kids and everything he has, and here's what his wife says in Job 2, 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. She essentially says, God has clearly already cursed you and abandoned you, Job. So why don't you go ahead and just curse and abandon him? And you have to love Job's response. Verse 10. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. Guys, you may not want to try that one at home, but, but you're welcome to. We won't be teaching that at Wedstrong this year. But he said, Thou speakest as one of the foolish Women speaketh, what, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Oh my goodness, do you, do you have ears to hear that this morning, if you're in the midst of trials and tribulations in your life? Will we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? Is the deal that we made with God that we will follow you and trust you, God, as long as you make my life hunky-dory? Or was the deal that we made with God that we've been bought with a price and that our lives are not our own, come what may? Do trials and tribulations cause us to believe that God has abandoned us and so therefore we abandon him? Or do we say alongside of Job what he said in Job 121? Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Despite your circumstances, can you say that with him this morning? Job understood that God judging and determining to allow adversity righteous how about the blind man in john chapter 9 even the disciples were confused about this whole thing of how it is that we should view tribulations and adversity and and and, and this and this is how it works john 9 1 says and as jesus passed by he saw a man which was blind from his birth and his disciples asked him saying master who did sin this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Do you you guys see the disciples' confusion right here? They they believed that because tribulations and adversity, they believed that tribulations and adversity in this blind man's life, evidently that God God had damned him or abandoned him for some reason. He must be punishing him if he has allowed this. But Jesus corrects this really quick. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. 
Listen, God had a purpose for this blind man's adversity, even though no one was understanding it. And he has a purpose for all of our adversity, too. There's always a purpose, but, but Jesus makes it clear that this adversity in his life wasn't because God had abandoned him. It was so God could use him to make his works manifest or make his works clear and visible to the world. And then here's one for you. What, what about Jesus? It, it, it was believed that God had forsaken him, too. In Psalm 22, it's a prophecy about Jesus, and, and it includes the details of his crucifixion. And here's Jesus' adversary's response to him being crucified, as prophesied in Psalm 22. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They pop off at the mouth. They, they shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. This, this prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in Matthew 27, 43, when while Jesus was on the cross, the religious leaders of the day said, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Jesus is crucified, and do you see what everybody around him thought? They were laughing at him, saying, this guy trusted God, and look, God has abandoned him. And obviously, we know that wasn't the case. God righteously allowed those things for a purpose, so that we might be saved. <laughs> and everywhere you turn in the Bible, and everywhere you turn, even to this day, we have the hardest time not associating trials and tribulations to God forsaking and abandoning us. But God has not abandoned us, and he has not forsaken us. As believers in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that should cause us to believe that because he can't be separated from us, and there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Romans 8, chapter 35, Romans chapter 8, verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, nay, in all of these things. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, God won't abandon his own children. And no matter what happens to us in this life, tribulations, distresses, running out of food, no clothes, war, fighting, demonic working in our midst, whatever it is, the government being against us, no matter what's going on, there's nothing on this planet or off of this planet that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ that we have found in salvation. Nothing. Do you believe that this morning? Persecutions and trials and tribulations, they're not a sign of God abandoning us despite our natural inclination to want to believe that. But do you know what it actually is according to the verse that we looked at in Philippians 1, 28 and 29? It's, a, it, it, it's, it's not an evident token of perdition. 
It's an evident token of salvation. You see, the world sees adversity, and we tend to see it as an evident token of God abandoning us. But God says it's actually an evident token that I'm with you. It's an evident token of salvation. Because as verse 29 says, we haven't just been called to believe on Jesus. We've actually been called to suffer for his sake. So when a believer, when we face suffering and adversity, we don't see it as token or, or representative of God abandoning us. We understand that he has suffered for us. And as those that are saved, he's called us now to suffer for him. So as believers, we've been called to suffering and adversity. So our suffering and adversity, it isn't a token or representative of perdition or that God has abandoned or forsaken us. It's a token or representative of our salvation. God hasn't abandoned us. And, and because he suffered for us, and according to our verse in 2 Thessalonians 1.5, God righteously judges for persecutions and tribulations to be in our lives. But, but you see, even though God allows it, that doesn't mean that when individuals are responsible for bringing persecutions and tribulations into our lives, that doesn't mean that God's not going to deal with it. So, so next I want us to see the way that God provides recompense for adversity. The way God provides recompense for our adversity. Sure, God allows for persecutions and, and tribulations to come in our lives, and oftentimes that's at the hands of people. But those people, they're, they're doing what they're doing of their own free will, and God's not going to turn a blind eye to it. God will recompense. He will make restitution. He will repay for those things. Because look at our, our next verse in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. It says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. I think it says 6, but it's actually, that's actually verse 5. It may not, you may not have it. That's okay. Just listen. Seeing, it says, is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God will recompense or repay those that trouble us and bring persecutions, tribulations, and adversity to our lives. And just like he righteously allowed us to go through tribulations in our lives, he also righteously recompenses and repays those who cause those problems in our lives. Jesus laid out this principle when talking to the disciples in Luke 17:1 when he said, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. <laughs> these offenses and these persecutions, man, they're going to come. But, but to those that are doing the persecuting, man, they, they better look out. It's a righteous thing for God to turn that thing on their head. In fact, God is a, is a big fan of poetic justice. He, he, he's a big fan of of recompensing tribulations in a way that are way that is ironically appropriate do you remember pharaoh you remember what pharaoh tried to do early on pharaoh wanted to to drown all the male babies that were born to the israelites didn't he and do you remember what happened to him 
That's right. After the 12 plagues in Egypt, Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go, but, but then he changes his mind, right? And he, and he storms back after him. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites make it across. Meanwhile, Pharaoh and his armies, they're chugging along in hot pursuit. And as they're in hot pursuit, God brings that Red Sea and he goes ahead and brings that bad boy right back down again. And Pharaoh and his armies drown in the Red Sea. You remember King Darius's advisors in the book of Daniel? You remember them? These guys wanted to kill Daniel so stinking bad these guys couldn't see straight. It was sick. And, and so Darius's advisors, he, he, they essentially tricked King Darius into changing the law. And they changed the law to outlaw praying. They, they made praying illegal. They literally followed Daniel around. And they were like, good grief, if we're ever going to catch anything on this guy, we're going to have to make praying illegal. I mean, what, a, what an incredible testimony. And that's what they did. So they got King Darius to outlaw praying, though King Darius didn't realize their motive in doing it. And Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. But as you know, of course, God is there and he protects Daniel in the lion's den. But do you know who ended up in a lion's den then later without protection from God? You guessed it. King Darius's advisors ended up in the lion's den. And many times in the Old Testament, we see stories of God using these heathen nations to bring persecution upon his chosen people, the Israelites, for their disobedience. And those same heathen nations reaping what they've sown and God righteously recompensing them for what they've done to his people. And that's how God still operates today. God is going to handle those that persecute us and, and cause us tribulations. You know, I, I, I get how it is. It, if something is, someone is, is wronging us or, or bringing persecution and, and adversity into our lives or, or into the lives of someone in our family or someone that we love or care about, we do tend to want God to take care of it. I don't mean just, I don't mean kill him. These guys are sick. No, I don't mean I don't kill it. We want God to handle it, and we want God to take care of it, but we want to do it right after we've handled it however we want to handle it first. <laughs> God, I know you promised that you'll deal with all the people that caused the adversity. You'll take care of any of the ways I've been wrong, but before you do, let me get my pound of flesh. Let me get a few things off my chest and let me be sure they get an earful and know they can't treat me like that. And listen, I'm not saying be a, a doormat. I'm just saying that God has so designed it that he would be the one to take care of recompensing and he's told us to back off. It's not our place. It's God's place. Romans 12, 17 says, and, and, and here's that word again, recompense recompense to no man evil for evil we're not the ones to recompense we're not the ones to get even in fact a few verses earlier in verse 14 of chapter 12 it, it says not only should we not recompense evil for evil we should bless them which persecute you and bless and curse not yes but don't, oh, but don't you understand the way they make me feel, Justin, and the way that they make my blood boil? 
No, well, yeah, I might actually, but, but that's no excuse. Bless them which persecute you anyway. Romans 12, 19 lays this out for us as plain as it can get. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, if he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We have not been called to avenge ourselves because vengeance does not belong to us. Do you understand that? Verse 19 says it does belong to somebody and it belongs to God. So when we take vengeance in our own hands, we're actually taking something that doesn't belong to us. We're stealing. And we're not just stealing from anybody. We're stealing from God. It belongs to God. He is the judge and vengeance belongs to him and he will avenge, repay, and recompense. Recompensing is for God to take care of, not for us. God says, yeah, I... I know you want to jump in on this one. And, and I know you want to avenge yourself for the way that they treated you, but why don't you sit this one out, tough guy? I got this one, cupcake. And, and, and not only are we to, to sit this one out, here's what we're to do to the one that wronged us. According to verse 20, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And when you do that, it's going to burn them up. We're going to be doing what God called us to do, and it's going to be driving the one that wronged us absolutely nuts. Sounds like a win-win to me. But if we don't respond that way and let God handle it, you know what ends up happening? According to verse 21, we're going to be overcome by the evil. We're going to be overcome by that bitterness toward that person. We're going to be overcome by our desire for revenge that we have. For that person we're going to be overcome by what may become hate for that person and so that we're not overcome by that evil we have to be certain that we overcome the evil with good that's the only way to do it that's the only way to respond to those that cause us tribulations and persecutions we have to overcome the evil with we with good lest we be overcome with the evil and do you realize how freeing that is it's freeing to be able to let go and let God deal with it however he chooses. We don't have to hold on to those feelings anymore. And we can let go and be free from the anger and the frustration and the resentment. God is the scorekeeper, and God makes the rules of how we play the game. So when we get knocked around by somebody, we don't have to worry about knocking them back around because God says, I'm keeping score in this game and vengeance doesn't belong to you, according to my rules. It belongs to me. And according to my rule book, you're not to avenge yourself lest you become overcome with the evil and become no better than the person that wronged you. And you know what we're actually doing when we do that the right way? We're doing it exactly how Jesus did it. This is exactly what he modeled for us, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, 
because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do instead? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Though Jesus never sinned when he was reviled and vilified and slandered, he didn't revile, vilify, and slander back. When he went through unjustifiable and merciless suffering, he didn't threaten them. But he did exactly what he told us to do. He let it go and he surrendered it to the righteous judge and he let the righteous judge deal with it. And you say, well, good grief then, when is he going to deal with it? I've had people wronging me and putting me through persecutions and tribulations for years, and they seem to be doing just fine out there. Well, one of the things that really helps us understand this is, is from the book of Deuteronomy. Some of you may have noticed earlier when we were in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, where it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Well, right before that part of the verse, it says, it is written, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You see, so when Paul is writing this verse in Romans in the New Testament, he's pointing us back to where the same thing was said in the Old Testament. And there's a couple places, but one of them is Deuteronomy 32, 35, where God is speaking. And here's what he says, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense their foot shall slide when in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things that shall come upon them make haste you see again the bible says vengeance and recompense belong to god it doesn't belong to us and so when we avenge ourselves we're taking something that doesn't belong to us but belongs to god but look at when it says that god will provide the recompense he will provide the recompense in due time. He'll recompense it when he deems it's time. When that time is, is none of our concern. Just know he's got this. And know this, sometimes it's not in this life. It, it, and this is a tough one to get a hold of, even, it, even when the evils and the wrongs aren't directly affecting us. This is a hard one to get a hold of. When we, when we see and we hear about the abuse of children in the world and murder and rape and evil in the world, it's really challenging to be okay with them getting what they're going to get in the next life because we want to see it happen now. And I'm right there with you. <laughs> Even David struggled with this idea. You know, Listen to the way he calls out to God for answers in Psalm 94, beginning in verse 1. Would you, would you listen to this? This is David crying out, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. <laughs> Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. He's, he's not talking about a good reward here. Lord, how, sh how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord shall not see 
neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. And I know we feel that sometimes. We feel that way too, don't we? Sometimes it's because of tribulations that have happened to us, and other times it's the tribulation and wickedness that we see all throughout this world, and we can't help but want to come before God and ask Him, how much longer are you going to put up with this trash? And then in the last verse of this same chapter in Psalm, Psalm Psalm 94, 23, after, after David expresses his frustration, he settles in and he clings to the truth of the word of God. And in talking about God, he says, and he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. And here's what I'm trying to make sure that you see. It's that God will recompense in due time. I know it seems like those that commit evil against us and those that commit evil in the world are always getting away with it. But God says, relax, I'll take care of it in due time, even if that due time is later than you want it to be. It's like the it's like the story of the the two farmers. You know, you know, the story of the two farmers. There's a there's a one farmer's a believer and there's another farmer and he's an atheist and Harvest comes, and man, the crops of the atheist, boy, they're popping off. And the crops of the believer, you know, they're, they're not doing so hot. And so the atheist starts gloating to the believer and saying, I thought you said it paid to be a Christian. The believing farmer responded and said, it does pay, but God doesn't always pay his people in September. You see, the believing farmer understood that God's timing isn't always our timing. Things don't always go our way in our time frame the way that we feel like it should, and God doesn't always recompense evil in the time frame that we feel like he should. And so because this believing farmer trusted God's timing, he didn't have to get rattled and bent out of shape when things weren't going his way. Or when he was in the midst of adversity or he saw an unbelieving world doing better than him. Why would you allow him? Because he trusted God to handle it how he decides and in his timing. And again, here's the thing I want you to consider as it relates to God recompensing in his timing. Understand, God will recompense those that bring us persecutions, trials, and tribulations. But it may not be until the second coming. God will recompense those that bring persecutions, trials, and tribulations, but it may not be until the second coming. It will be in due time, but that may be, that due time may be, the second coming. God never promised to recompense all evil in this life. Yeah, that's sometimes how he does it, but that's not always how he does it. Our passage this morning in 2 Thessalonians 1 goes on to describe this exact thing. Pick up in verse 7 back to our passage. Again, in verse 7 it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Listen, at the second coming, which these verses we're studying are describing right here, it makes it clear that Jesus isn't coming 
the second time the same way that he came the first time. The second time Jesus comes, he's not coming as the lamb. He's coming as the lion. The first time Jesus came, John 3.17 says he, he, he wasn't sent to condemn the world. But the second time he's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God who will be punished in everlasting destruction in a place called hell. So God's saying to us this morning, he says, listen, don't you worry about persecutions and tribulations that you endure in this life, even if we experience being physically beaten for our faith, because even if it doesn't seem like those that are doing evil are ever going to get justice, rest assured, either in this life or the next or both, it's coming. Now, of course, this, this, these, the, our passage this morning, it, it presupposes that those that are persecuting us and bringing tribulations into our lives, it presupposes that they're unbelievers. Because the believers, of course, won't face God's vengeance and punishment like these verses describe. So, and for this Thessalonian church, that was actually the case, right? The adversity they were facing was at the hand of unbelievers. But listen, the, the, the principles that we're, that, uh, that we're applying this morning re remain the same, whether it's believers or unbelievers that are meeting out the persecution upon us. We're not to avenge ourselves, but we're to bless them that curse us, and God will handle those that bring the adversity in due time, however he chooses to handle it. What, and what else we can do is exactly what we're about to see next in our text this morning. We can, we can rest. That's what we can do. Number three, the way God gives rest through our adversity. The way God gives rest through our adversity. We, we read this just a moment ago from 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, but, but read it again with me if you would. It says, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and as we just read, the following verses go on to describe Jesus coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't believe at the second coming. Because that's when we can truly rest. Because though Jesus is coming back in flaming fire and he's taking vengeance on those that refuse to come to him by faith, According to verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, just a few verses later, the other side of that coin is, is he's coming to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in them that believe. He's coming back to ultimately to be with us. And listen, we can rest in that. That's when we can rest. We can rest in the fact that Jesus is going to set all things right in the world and we're going to be with him and glorify him and admire him when he comes. So we can rest in the eternal reality that our current existence will all be over someday and we'll be with the one that created us. Amen. And we'll be with the one that told us that he's keeping score and he will settle the score. And he'll take care of it his way and his timing. So instead of holding on to the fact that our dad was a deadbeat and he failed in his responsibilities to us, instead of holding on to the fact that your mom treated you like trash, instead of holding on to the fact that a church hurt you, instead of holding on to the fact that people judge you and they mistreat your kids, instead of holding on to all of that stuff, 
and storing up all that animosity and, and storing up all of that resentment. Ah, you can, you can rest. You can, you, can, you can rest knowing that the one that's keeping score is coming back and the one that judgeth righteously will handle it either in this life or in the next life. And we don't have to worry about dealing with it. And it's really none of our business how or when God deals with it. We can rest in the, that the righteous judge has it all under control. All throughout the Bible, when God is telling us how to handle it, when persecutions and tribulations come our way, it always comes back to this thing of you view it through the lens of the eternal. That's how you do it. We view it from the from the hope that God is coming back in eternity. And if we handle these things properly, every bit of adversity will be worth it in that day because God gave us the ability to store up treasures in heaven by how we respond to adversity. That's our hope. Not a, not a hope as in I hope so, but a hope as in it's certain, just as certain as if it's already happened. It's what Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, it calls our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ that 2 Thessalonians 1 describes. In that day, there's going to be a lot of things that seemed like a really big deal in this life. An adversity that seemed just monumental that we're going to see totally different. Because our faith then is going to become sight and we're going to fully grasp what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11 when Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You see, the key is seeing it now the way that we're going to see it then. Because when we do that, we can rest and even rejoice in the midst of persecutions because we understand the eternal reward in heaven. We'll see it like Paul described in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, when he said, for our, what kind of affliction was it? Light affliction. And how long did that thing last? But for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Through the lens of the eternal, y'all, we see it for what it truly is. Light affliction. Paul's light affliction for what it's worth included being beaten half to death and thrown in jail and running for his life, just so you know. He understood, though, that it's light affliction and it only lasts for a moment. But despite being light and only lasting for a moment, God's saying the reward, though, is eternal. What a great trade that is. Trading the temporal for the eternal. We're all going to enjoy heaven, but our capacity to enjoy it to the fullest degree is determined by our investments in this life in the eternal we get caught up investing all that we have to make this world our little heaven on earth and god is saying 
Why don't you invest all that you have to increase your capacity to enjoy the real heaven? And so we don't look at the things which are, are seen, but the things that can't be seen with physical eyes. We look at the eternal, the things that are not seen. So, so, so there are things, of course, that can only be seen then through spiritual eyes if they're not seen. And you see, it's interesting because the way it works is, is we can actually rest now because we understand that rest is coming later. Because you realize that's actually how God describes this period of time in the future. You remember the, you guys remember the, the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, right? The, the Sabbath day was, was what? It was a day of rest. And God is using that day of rest. He's using it. Listen closely. He's using it to paint a picture for us. God instituted the Sabbath day for the Israelites in the Old Testament, but the original Sabbath was when God rested on the seventh day after creating the world. On the seventh day, he rested. And when you put that into the whole of Scripture, and you put it into the formula that God gives us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, is it, by the way, this is a formula that God warns us. He warns us, he says, you better not be ignorant of this. You need to get this. When we do that and we plug that into the formula, we understand why it is, listen, that a God that doesn't need to rest would make a point to make the seventh day the day he rested. Why would he do that? It's because... A day is as a thousand years. And when we plug that into the week of creation, you realize what happens is those first six days or those first 6,000 years of human history, they've rattled off, haven't they? And we're on the brink of the seventh. And the Lord will return soon. And, and when he does, you realize what that's ushering in, don't you? It ushers in the millennium. The millennium is the thousand-year period of time that follows the second coming where Jesus is ruling and reigning on this planet. It's a thousand-year day of rest because one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So that's why there are seven days of creation representing 6,000 years of human history and then the millennium as the seventh day. And that's why a God that doesn't need sleep made the seventh day a day of rest. He's literally pointing us to the future, of, uh, to the entire future of mankind right from the get-go in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and he's giving us an aerial view of the timeline of all of human history. But he's not just pointing us to the day of rest so that we know the timeline. He's pointing us to the day of rest so that in understanding the rest that's coming in the future, we will rest today. God's teaching us about the future, which should impact our present. 
Because of our rest that's coming in the future, we can rest today. We don't, we don't rest from the mission of reaching people with the gospel and establishing them in the faith. No, we can rest in the midst of persecutions, trials, and tribulations because we're looking to the day of rest in the future when it will all be worth it. We can rest in the midst of persecutions, trials, and tribulations because we're looking to the day of rest in the future when it will all be worth it. And we do the same thing that Acts 2.26 describes that Jesus did. In the midst of incredible adversity, it says we can rest in hope. (laughs) We rest in hope. That's how we rest. We rest in our hope and assurance of the day that's coming in the future and that's coming soon. And that's how, listen, no matter how noisy it is around us, no matter what circumstances that we're currently living, we can rest knowing that God is coming soon and he will make everything right in his way and in his timing. Father, we love you. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you, God, that we don't have to wear the burden of trying to be responsible for something that you didn't make us responsible for. In fact, you you took that responsibility from us and you said you would handle all of those things and that we need to just lay off. I pray, God, that we would rest in that. I pray, God, that we would rest in the hope that we have in the future, the rest in the hope that we have in in eternity, that everything that goes on in this life and everything, every trial and every tribulation that goes on in this life, God, you are giving us an opportunity to develop our capacity to worship you and to enjoy heaven even more. And what, a, what an unbelievable privilege you've blessed us with. God, you suffered for us. Now you've called us to suffer for you, God. I pray that we would do that in a way that pleases you and that we would take rest despite our circumstances, God. We love you. In your name we pray.